Welcome to Dig Deep. Well, today we are concluding our series, Shine. And I thought it was really appropriate that about two weeks ago, at bedtime, my older daughter requested that we sing the song, This Little Light of Mine. And we haven't sung this in a really long time. In fact, we found out that night that my younger daughter didn't know it at all. I don't think she'd ever heard it before. And she was really excited to learn it. I don't know if you sang it when you were a kid, but it's got hand motions and it's really fun and cute. And I realized as we were singing, oh man, this is really perfect because we're in the middle of this Shine series. And this song is based on, I can tell it's based on the Matthew 5 passage that's been our foundational scripture throughout this series. And so I'll get back to the song itself in a second, but first I want us to revisit that passage and just remember that this is the foundation for our whole series. Jesus says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 14, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. And so as I'm singing this little song with my daughters, there's the first verse which sings, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And I thought, right, well, that's what we're told to do here in verse 16. It says, let your light shine out for all to see. And then you get to the second verse where it says, hide it under a bushel, and then you exclaim, no. I'm going to let it shine. And you use your one hand to sort of cover up the light. And then you say, no, I'm going to let it shine anyway. And I thought, okay, gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. Verse 15 says, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. You know, no, you got to remove that and let it shine. But then we get to the third verse. And the third verse, we start singing, don't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. And I thought to myself, as we're singing, wait, what? Where does that come from? Don't let Satan it out. I mean, can he do that? What would that even look like in my life? Yikes. Where does that come from in scripture? Is it that simple for him? I got totally distracted singing this little kid song to my girls. And I'm thinking, man, is, is this song just totally jacked up? I don't know where it says that in scripture that Satan can just come along and blow out this light in our lives. And I personally have not found a scripture yet that says that he can do that, but there is a theme that I see in scripture, and that is that the evil one, Satan, wants to use anything he can in this life, struggles, circumstances, pain, to dim our light, and that if we let them, our circumstances can choke out the life and light that God wants us to give to the world around us. And so today, I want us to look at a passage of scripture that gives us a picture of what it really looks like to live lives that allow God's light to shine through us into the world around us. And not just in a cute kid song, but in real life, in real messy life. How is this possible? So our scripture for today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Paul says, For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. 
We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. He says there is a light within you, and that light was placed there by God. And then Paul says in verse 18, he gives us instruction on how we can live that out, how we can keep that light shining in our lives. And he says, so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. The way we keep our light burning brightly is by fixing our gaze on Jesus. There's a lot of power in a focal point. I've given birth to three little ones, and when I was preparing to have our first child, I know that I knew that I wanted to at least try for natural childbirth. And we so we read books and we took a class and I was feeling pretty prepared and just a few weeks before our little one arrived, we had some friends who had recently had their first child and we decided to take them a meal. My my husband was friends with the husband of this couple in college, and I think I had met his wife maybe once before, but we didn't know each other all that well. But we took them dinner and got to visit with them briefly, and I found out that she had had a natural childbirth. And I, at the time, didn't have any close friends who had gone through that recently, and she had just gone through it. So I had a lot of questions for her about what it was like and what was the hardest part and was it a good decision? Is she glad she did it? And it was a great conversation. And I left feeling like, yeah, I can do this. This is going to be great. And I was more confident in my decision than I had been before that conversation. Well, our day came and when contractions started getting really bad, we started to try to use some of the strategies that we'd learned. My husband um, started by turning on the mellow playlist that we had made, which had been recommended. And very quickly I said, no, no, I'm sorry, turn it off. I just want it to be quiet. And so then he tried the next tactic, the next thing on our list of strategies to, to use. And he tried massaging my back or squeezing my hand. And I was amazed by how much I wanted to just punch him in the face and say, don't ever touch me again. I felt really bad. These are things we had talked about and planned to do, and they were not working at all. So then he resorted to our biggest strategy, which was to use focal points to help me visualize getting through each contraction, especially as they started getting worse and worse. And so we had talked about once what some of these focal points could be, and he had made up some on his own. And so he started describing the sweetest scenes of us introducing this little one to our family and enjoying the summer at the beach in just a few months. I mean, these these really sweet pictures that were hopefully going to serve as a focal point and I could barely get out the words, but I'm sorry, honey, it is not working. Please shut it down. I love you, but just be quiet. And I don't in any way want to belittle his contribution because I truly, truly could not have done it without his help and his love and his support. But there was one focal point that became pivotal to my success in natural childbirth, and that was 
the image of this new friend sitting on her couch, holding her beautiful baby, not screaming (laughs) or crying, but at peace. And even though I didn't know her very well, I knew that she had gone through exactly what I was going through and she was now experiencing life on the other side. I had a clear goal. I had a focal point and I was surprised at how big of a help that was in getting me through that painful process. Pastor Mitchell Lee, the lead pastor of Grace Community Church here in Maryland, this past Sunday shared an illustration in his sermon that was just too relevant and perfect for me not to steal it and use it for this episode. So thanks, Mitchell. He shared that a German research scientist, Jan Suman, co-wrote a paper about the human tendency to walk in circles. And what Suman did was he took subjects out into the wide open Sahara Desert, he blindfolded them, and then told them to try to walk in a straight line for as long as they could, as far as they could, for up to an hour. And what they found again and again is that subjects could not walk in a straight line, not even really for any small amount of time. If you look at the maps of the paths that they took, it's amazing to see just how twisted and circular their paths were. Many of them ended up not far from where they began, even after an hour of walking. So Suman then went on to run the same experiment or a similar experiment in a forest in Germany. And this time he didn't blindfold his subjects. And as the subjects walked through the forest, Suman mapped where they went. And when you look at the map of those results, they're really strange. There are several blue lines that all start at a red dot, and just like in the desert studies, they meander in circles and end up all over the place. And in an interview with NPR, the interviewer suggested, I mean, have you found a reason why people seem to do this, blindfolded or not? We cannot seem to walk in a straight line. And does it have anything to do with our right or left-handedness? Do right-handed people tend to wander right and left-handed people? And he threw out all these theories, and Suman said, nope, nope. Nope. We have explored all of these theories about why human beings veer to one side or the other, and none of them consistently lines up. We don't know why, but people can't seem to walk in a straight line. They walk in circles. But when you look at the map of the results of that forest study, you immediately notice that there's one long yellow path that is remarkably straight. And you have to immediately ask the question, okay, what's the deal with that line? What made the difference for that test subject? And it's so simple, but that was the day that the sun came out. All the other subjects did their walks on cloudy days. And the article summed it up like this. Humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point, like a mountaintop, a sun, a moon. Without a corrective, our insides take over and there's something inside us that won't stay straight. And the same is true of us spiritually. When we place our faith in Jesus, we're acknowledging something isn't right here. I'm going in circles. I keep making the same mistakes in my life. My way of doing things just isn't working. And then we get a glimpse of Jesus And his truth illuminates our lives and things begin to make sense for the first time 
and the straight path slowly becomes clear. And then once we step onto that path, letting Jesus take over and lead us, walking by faith, he uses us to draw others to that same path. And that's the picture that we see in Matthew 5. We've been given a lamp to light the way, and God tells us to raise it up as high as we can to spread that light to as many other people as possible. But that light is not something that we keep burning on our own. It's not something that comes from within us at all. It's not even something that is handed to us by God one time and then we're good to go. That light is an external light source, like the sun, and it guides us and has the power to illuminate even the darkest parts of our lives. Look again at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And just like Suman's test subjects, when we focus on the ground beneath our feet or the trees in the forest that we're trying not to run into, we end up walking in circles. But when we lift up our eyes, when we fix our gaze on an external focal point that's beyond our circumstances, that is greater than our issues, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're able to navigate this life effectively. And in this series, we've covered some practical ways that we can shine his light in the lives of those around us. We do need to know our hill, to share our story boldly, and to just show up for hurting people. But we cannot sustainably do any of that without our eyes glued on Jesus. We just can't. In verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, it says, For God who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts. He is the one who gives it to us. And it goes on to say, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. You and I, our lives are just simple, cracked, broken, fragile vessels. And that's the way I feel most of the time. And the picture that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 is the same. He's talking about a lamp being placed on its stand, and the lamp that would have been used in a typical Palestinian home at that time was a small, modest, fragile clay thing. We cannot muster this up ourselves. We can't just add these things to some Christian to-do list that we have in our minds. The power to shine his light comes from him and him alone. And our job is to fix our gaze on him, to fix our eyes on him. So I want to close our time today and to close our series with looking at just a few practical ways that we can do that, a few ways that we can fix our eyes on him. And the first may seem obvious, but it's to spend time with him. Spend time with God alone. Spend time with God alone. It's crucial that we spend time regularly letting God illuminate our lives. It does not matter how long we've been a Christian. It does not matter how long I've been a Christian, how long you've been a Christian. You will never outgrow your need for this. You'll never outgrow your need for time alone with God. Do you ever wonder how 
some of the most visible lights in the Christian faith, people who stand on stages and boldly share about God's love through sermons and songs, how they sometimes fall flat on their faces. The darkness creeps into their lives, and even while they're out there shining the light of Jesus boldly to the world around them, they're failing to let it illuminate their own lives, and they blow it. They make a huge mistake, and we step back in shock and disappointment when a leader in the church has an affair or embezzles money or falls into an addictive behavior. Do you spend time regularly with God asking him to illuminate the dark places in your life? Does he have daily access to your decisions and your motivations and your thoughts and your secrets? For me, I'll admit that while I absolutely love sharing God's word with you, I mean, I really enjoy learning more about him and then sharing it through this podcast. And it's been a true joy and a a deep, deep honor for me to do that. Um, I have to be careful with this one. I have to be really careful that I personally don't miss this point because it can be all too easy for me to spend time alone with God, searching him out and never really letting him search me. And so I need to pray the prayer that we prayed in our Cleaning House series, the prayer from Psalm 139 that says, search me out, O God, take a giant searchlight and bring it into my heart and illuminate the dark corners. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to let God come in and search us out. Spend time alone with God. So we need to spend time with God alone, but the second way we do this is to spend time with God with others. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul makes this pretty obvious. He keeps using the word we. See, Paul knew better than anyone that this is a community effort. We, we were never meant to do this alone. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are hard-pressed but not crushed. We need to take our eyes off of our troubles, and we need to fix our eyes on him. Not you, not me. We need to fix our gaze on Jesus together. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And I don't think Paul's being a proud jerk here saying, oh, I figured everything out, so you just follow me and I'll follow Christ and then you'll be good to go. No, he's acknowledging that in this life, we, I believe, are meant to be many focal points for each other as we all strive to fix our eyes on the ultimate focal point of Christ himself. Let me explain one way that this has been true in my life. A little over a year ago, I was at a conference and I met a woman named Grace and we became quick buddies. We had some almost eerie similarities, you know, including some personality traits, spiritual gifts. We realized we had a lot in common. We were both moms of young kids. And then we found out that we both had husbands who worked in vocational ministry. And we kept sort of leaning back and squinting at each other as if to say, man, is this really weird? I can't believe all that we have in common. And we got to be buddies. And the last night of the conference, we went a little deeper in conversation and she shared with me about her life and that she and her husband had recently gone through a really painful 
ending with the church where her husband had been on staff as the worship pastor. And as she shared, she was very real and honest and raw, um, but not just about how painful it was, but also about how much healing God had done in their lives and in their hearts in the time since it had happened. And it was less than six months after that that I found myself standing in the exact situation she had described. And in the midst of the swirling pain and confusion and tears, she popped into my mind. And in the same way that my natural childbirth friend had become a focal point of sorts for me in labor, Grace from the conference became like a focal point for me in the storm that I was in because I could picture her. I remember sitting there across from her and she wasn't crying. She was smiling. She didn't have makeup running and smeared all over her face. She seemed at peace. And more importantly, she was actively using her gifts, serving God and serving his church in ministry alongside her husband. And so I was so grateful that we had exchanged information. And even though she and I hadn't talked since the conference, I reached out to her and she immediately called me. And she's been a voice of reason and hope and peace in my life. She's been a mini focal point, a picture of what God wants to do in my life because she's living on the other side of what I was currently experiencing. And I know that that was God. I know that God placed her there in my life. I mean, the way that we met was just way too random. The timing was just too perfect. We need to spend time with God, with others. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. If you're not going to church right now, get back to church. Yes, those places are filled with other broken, mistake-making humans, just like you and me, but God's design for his people is to walk toward his light together in community, helping each other illuminate the dark places in our own lives and in each other's lives. Spend time with God, with others. And lastly, be real about your brokenness. I want to read verse 7 again. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. See, it's your brokenness that truly puts the light of God on display. If that friend who had gone through natural childbirth had said, yeah, you know, I just giggled and then she popped out. It was amazing. That would have been no help to me at all. And if Grace from the conference had told me about her situation and just said, oh, well, you know, say la vie. God is good. Amen. That would have been no help to me when I was in my own painful situation. I needed them to be real about the struggle so that I could really grasp on to the hope that they said was available, to the goodness that they said was on the other side. When you're real about your brokenness and the light shines through you anyway, 
it's then that people see a glimpse of God. They see what he's doing in and through your life by his power, even in the midst of your brokenness. And that has the power to change people's lives. So we fix our eyes on him by spending time with him alone, by spending time with him with others, and by being real about our brokenness. And I want to close today and close our series by reading 2 Corinthians 4 one more time, starting in verse 6. For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And then verse 18. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Thanks for being here today. There won't be a new episode next week, but the following week we'll be kicking off a brand new series, so we look forward to seeing you back here then. And until then, remember to dig deep 